you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40 is where we're learning together today. Genesis 40 is smack, well, not quite in the middle, I suppose, if you're counting by chapters, uh, but we're going to find out today that it's, it's, in fact, quite a ways into the saga or the story of Joseph. Joseph's life is remarkable. It's remarkable in a lot of ways. Uh, one, of course, because he was used uniquely in the plan of God bringing redemption to his people, so he does have a unique part in that story. I mean, there's a reason he's recorded in Scripture. So you could say that his story is remarkable because Joseph is, is specifically in the line of Jesus. And so, of course, he has a remarkable life. But I think more than that, we say that the life of Joseph is remarkable because of its unique circumstances. So of all the people who are in the line of Jesus, he has lots of things happen to and around and through him. So the circumstances of his life, the context of his life is interesting and extreme in many, many ways. But more than that, I think the reason that we say that the life of Joseph is remarkable is because we so clearly see in Joseph, in the circumstances, in his life, something that all of us hope for. In fact, I think it's the very nature of faith, living in a world that is fallen and broken and full of sin. What we see in Joseph's life is that in unexplainable circumstances, in things that are difficult, in patient waiting, in hardship, in suffering, that at the end of all of that, God was there, He was present, He was planning. In fact, He was caring in a way that we could not see. And I think the reason that we call Joseph's life remarkable, the reason that we love his story is because it's a place in the Bible where we can look back and find confidence and assurance because all of us are living in days where we're not quite sure what is going to come. We're holding on to promises that what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf is going to carry us through to eternity. But we don't yet see the end. We've been given a faith by the Spirit of God to say that God is working all things together for good, but when the bad things come and when suffering comes, we have to step forward in sometimes what feels like a blind faith. And Joseph becomes very relatable to us because his story for so long has what seems to be only darkness, and then definitively it comes full circle. And in confidence and in faith, we find out that God was, in fact, working for good behind the scenes. That's what we all want. We all hope that in the most difficult parts, the scars of our life, we all hope that we can look back and we will just as much confidence be able to say, God meant good in the midst of this. That's the hope that we have. And so I think Joseph's life calls to us and asks us to renew our faith and our trust. However, I know, and I think that we need to preach with fullness. We need to remember with fullness the whole thing that God is doing. The entirety of the story of redemption, the idea that Joseph's story comes full circle. But what I want to do for now is something that we're attempting to do. One of the hard parts in reading the Bible with well-known stories is that they're well-known. And your familiarity with these stories could lead you to a point where you miss perhaps what is required of Joseph. You miss why, why the story is remarkable in the first place because you say to yourself, well, I already know this is fine. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to read these passages 
and try to put ourselves in a place where we don't know, where we realize what is required of a person to walk faithfully with God when you don't see, when you're not sure if scars are going to be met for good, when you're not sure if suffering's leading anywhere, when you're not sure if there's going to be an end to this, where you don't know if your story is going to make any sense. I want us to think about the moments in between when Joseph is having to be faithful without seeing the end. That's, that's still where we are. So I want to remind you that's still where we are. I cannot take out of your mind and your heart, of course, knowing the end, but I want us to not go there too quickly. That being said, it's not a throwaway statement for me to say I'm going to read Genesis 40 and to remind you that at this particular point, Joseph is in prison. He's not yet the right-hand man. He's not yet the sudden and surprising rescuer of all of his people. He's not yet this. He starts Genesis 40 in prison. And so let's read the 40th chapter of Genesis, and then we'll take some time to pray and consider it. Genesis 40 says this, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. I want to take a moment and pray. Let's do that now. 
God, I thank you for this day, this Lord's Day that you've given. I want to thank you for the place that we've gathered. I want to thank you for the love and commitments and connections that we have, most of all in Jesus. We thank you for your word, which speaks to us, calls to us. We thank you for your initiating love toward us, that you're relentless in pursuing us. And I pray that now as we think about Genesis chapter 40, that you would give us the right kind of understanding. I pray that we would not be asleep to the details of these stories or to the way that you might desire to help us apply your word to our life, to the the lives that you've given us. We pray, Spirit of God, bring conviction and bring comfort. Pray that even more than our own understanding, our own abilities, my words, Spirit of God, would you be at work? Take from Jesus and give to us and slowly, degree by degree, transform us from one bit of glory onto another. More like Jesus is what we want this morning, and so we pray for that in his name. Amen. Genesis 40, if I was going to summarize it, we're going to talk about it in two big big categories, two big terms. The first being prophetic dreams. It's pretty clear. The whole thing seems to be about these dreams and what happens. Uh, but there's something interesting, I think, as we talk about it. What do we mean by prophetic dreams, and how does that show up in this story? And then second, on the flip side of this, if we say, well, not only what is happening, but what is being felt, what's the underlying story under, what's the story under the story? And that's a second big category that I'm just going to call painful waiting. And I know that that's pretty straightforward, and it's not very artful, but I think that that's the lesson that we're seeing. That's the place that Joseph is. So first, this big category of prophetic dreams. Second, painful waiting. So in Genesis 40, Joseph is a prisoner servant. That's his title, if he, had, if he would have a title. He's been in custody for a long time. In fact, as we get to the painful waiting section later, we are informed or told that this is many years that are going by. Years. This is not a week or two or a month or two where he has a job that he doesn't like. This isn't your part-time job at high school that you couldn't wait to get rid of. This is years that are going by. And he is in custody because of this false accusation from his former master for Potiphar's wife. And it's here, after a long time, Joseph toiling away in, in obscurity in a lot of ways, of course obscurity from the fact that he is far from his homeland, far from his father, far from his brothers, not sure what is going on. In fact, I'm sure there's many days where he's tempted to think to himself, why this whole saga? More than that, why was I so influential for a little while in Potiphar's house only to be cast down here again in the dungeon? It turns out, though, that because God is with Joseph, he continues to be useful, and so either for pragmatic reasons or because God simply has a plan to continually exalt and then humble, exalt and then humble Joseph, he is still slave, but he's given a place of influence or a place of 
power, at least a place of waiting in the captain of the guard's house. The captain of the guard gets to enjoy the same kind of retirement, same kind of language that Potiphar did previously, where whatever Joseph does is succeeding. And so he is in charge of the other prisoners. And finally, after a long time, we get some interesting thing happen. There is two influential people that end up in the prison with him. And it may not be obvious to you at first, but I'm just going to make the case here for a second that these people are influential. First, we have a chief cupbearer, and second, a chief baker. Now, what do we mean by a chief cupbearer and a chief baker? We mean this. The cupbearer would have been an extremely close confidant of the pharaoh, someone who was trusted to be able to ensure that whatever he was drinking would not be poisoned or would not kill him. It is common, in fact, throughout this day and age that the kind of person who was a cupbearer would have been someone so trusted, so close, that they became more than just a simple taster of wine. It was not a sommelier. Is that how you say that word? He was not merely that, but he would have been someone who would not only listened in on conversations and had the... His ear was not only near to Pharaoh, but he had Pharaoh's ear. The cupbearer, and of course the baker in a different way, could have been seen as part of Pharaoh's cabinet, if you want to speak about it in that particular way. In fact, it is this particular role that shows up and is influential in the book of Nehemiah later in Scripture. This is a role where he has conversation and access to Pharaoh and, in fact, is entrusted partly with decision-making and the running of the country. I bring this up to say that later when we get to the point of their exchange in the prophetic dream, Joseph would have had great reason to hope. This is not just a random person in the back kitchen. The chief baker would have similarly been the person who was appointed to determine and bring forward the diet for Pharaoh, the person who ran the kitchen. But by his role, he would have been influential, trusted, near, with a lot of insight to the workings of the palace. And it is by God's providence that these two get shoved down into the prison, and Joseph, though he is a slave, is seeing over them. He attends them. He's in custody, they're in custody, but somehow this Hebrew, this foreigner, is now in charge of two of the most entrusted, close to cabinet people of Pharaoh in this prison. And it is here that a theme comes up. In verse 5 of Genesis 40, a theme comes up, or I should say a, a constant practice, something that has now become regular in the book of Genesis, and that is that dreams come to the forefront and have a prominence. So I just read this, but to recap for us, these dreams that they each have are troubling them. I can't help but see that Joseph is an attentive and a sensitive and a loving, you know, prison master, I guess you'd call him. Uh, he notices the problems of the cupbearer and the baker. It tells us in detail that he just sees that they're sad. Why the long face, he says. And then these dreams are brought up and Joseph knows something. He's confident, I believe, probably because Joseph, remember, his life starts out with, the, with being given dreams and then having them interpreted. In fact, he knows that he is the interpreter of them. But also, we recalled at Joseph's time that Jacob, his father, was a recipient of dreams. 
And so it's in this moment that Joseph thinks to himself, okay, these two are important, not just your average run-of-the-mill kind of people, and now they're receiving dreams, and so he steps forward in full confidence and says, I can interpret these because the interpretation belongs to God. So the cupbearer begins to tell his dream. He's the one to go first, which I think is understandable because his is more likely to be favorable. A couple of things to note about these dreams. One, the number three is consistently in them, and it's the theme of the entirety of the thing. There were three branches on this vine. Those three branches had three particular actions or verbs associated with them. They budded and shot forth and then ripened. Then the cupbearer has things that he does, and that's in thirds. He says, I took, I pressed, and I placed. And then finally, Joseph adds the interpretation over the top and tells them, well, here's what's going to happen. All these threes, the three branches, the three actions, all this, they represent three days. And in three days, you're going to be restored to your office. He uses this phrase, lifting up his head, and you will be the cupbearer once again. It's at this particular point that Joseph recognizes the opportunity that he has. Joseph now must feel like this is God moving on his behalf through dreams. He doesn't tell us what the offense was. He has no idea. How did the cupbearer end up in my custody? How do I have some influence over him? More than that, how does he have a dream that I am able in the moment to interpret for him and I know that he's going to be restored back to Pharaoh. He must have been super excited and thought it is through these dreams that God is telling me something. Not just telling the cupbearer, but telling me something. In other words, God is with me and this is my ticket. That's probably what he felt, perhaps even knew. And so he says, when you go back, do this kindness for me. Remember me. It's going to be well with you. Please let it be well with me. Joseph is maintaining what he knows to be his innocence. He reiterates to the cupbearer that he was stolen and then also that he is falsely accused in this place. Now, upon hearing this favorable story, right, the cupbearer says, well, this sounds good. I'm going to get my job back and everything's going to be hunky-dory and it's great. I only have to wait three more days down here. Awesome. It's at that particular point that the chief baker steps forward. I like how verse 16 says, the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, then he said. He was not the first to bring his, and I think that we all know from the details perhaps why. It's only after the favorable interpretation, the baker says like, okay, well, I'm going to tell you mine then too. However, his is much, much worse. We find the theme of three again through a dream, three cake baskets on his head, and the uppermost basket, all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh. Now, sometimes when you're reading about texts like this, you find a bunch of interesting details. Uh, one of them is that apparently someone went through the trouble of scouring all hieroglyphic texts from Egypt of the day, and what they found was that the chief baker, probably when he says all sorts of baked food, could have been referring to any number of, and these are the listed hieroglyphic baking goods. There are 38 different cakes listed in hieroglyphic literature, as well as 57 different varieties of bread. I don't know who sorted through and figured this out and listed them. But when he says there are all sorts of baked food, I think you can believe one of the best, this is Soto, this is, this is Whole Foods Bakery, this is all kinds of delicacies and all sorts of, I should give a hat tip to Panera, this is Panera, this is what Trevor is baking, he is a chief baker at Panera. 
The Egyptians had already mastered delicacies and food to the point where there were 38 listed different kinds of cakes and 57 different breads. And the chief baker says, I got a smorgasbord, a whole spread of baked things up there. But then here's the detail, of course, that is bad. There are birds eating out of it. And Joseph, I have to say, interprets accurately, but I think we're up to, you could be the judge of whether this is even slightly cruel. I'm not sure if this is the time, even though I'm a massive fan of puns, I'm not sure if this is the best time for a pun. But he says to the baker, in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head. And then there's, I don't know how your Bible interprets or writes this out, but the ESV, as I read through it, has a little pause there and then an exclamation point to show us that Joseph, I don't know if he said this ominously or meanly, but it seems like it's a bad time for a joke. But he's going to lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. The Hebrew indicates here that likely what was the source of his death was in fact impaling. He was lifted up into the air and killed. And the birds that were in the dream will in fact eat him. So here's the question that is pressed forward. What is God saying in these dreams? Joseph is confident that they're from God, and in fact that he can interpret them. But I think this is probably time, if you've been following along in Genesis all the way, for us to think together about prophetic dreams. Why is it and how is it that God is determined so often, it seems like in this book, to speak through this means? There are other times when God speaks up to this point in Genesis, and it's not always dreams. In fact, many times it seems like there's an audible voice. Sometimes God just says to Abram, but we don't know how that happens. I guess it could have been a dream, but we're not led to believe that. There's other times when God seems to see fit to send angels. And again, it seems as though there's a human-like figure or a heavenly-type figure that's very obvious. This is from God, and there's times when there's voices that come. Then there are other times where there are dreams, but God just speaks openly in the dream, and so it's not up for interpretation. You don't have to do any work of interpretation if the dream, in the dream, God himself is speaking to you. But other times, there are what we might call prophetic or revelatory dreams, and they are completely or only visual experiences. And so they leave the person waking to wonder where has this come from, and what is God saying, and who can I find that will tell me about it? Ancient Egypt had a practice of considering dreams to be important. In fact, much of the ancient world did. And it turns out, I think, that what we should learn from our Bibles is, and I can just say this out loud, they had good reason to believe that dreams should be important. God used them. They were very significant in telling and moving along the story of God's people. The problem here, it seems like, they all have an agreement about the importance of dream. The problem is that they can't get to what probably would have been something like a necromancer in, in Egypt's day. They can't find the people that they would have gone to to say, tell me what this means. But in this particular case, Joseph, for whatever reason, says, yes, this is for sure from God, and God can interpret them. In fact, he's given me the ability to interpret, and so dreams are what move the story along. Now, I'll just ask a few questions, and I think maybe they'll be the questions that you have. Does God still do this? What are we supposed to make of dreams like this? Do all of us need to sleep more? 
and it would solve our direction problems in life? I do think in some ways, yes. What are we to do if we have a dream that is not auditory in nature, not directly from God, but just seems symbolic? How do we handle these things? Is there any pattern? I think about things like this. Is there any pattern to the way that God gives dreams or experiences like this? And I'll just try to answer a few of these things the best that I possibly can. One, does God still use dreams? I would say that the clearest way I can answer that is there's no reason to believe that He has somehow completely and totally ended this practice. He has not bound Himself away from this particular practice. Second, though, I would also say that prophetic dreams in this particular way seem to fall underneath a bigger category that the Bible gives us of teaching and instruction and care, and that is that they need to be tested. So, the New Testament says that we should seek prophetic gifts, or we should seek revelation from God, but that we should test everything. Abhor what is evil and then keep what is good. And so, it seems to be that Joseph is in many ways a unique case where he could dream dreams, and then he was also the definitive God-ordained interpreter of these dreams. In our day and age, if someone has a dream or something that comes forward or say, I had a vision for something, I think what we would say is, well, collectively as a church and according to the teaching of Scripture, bring the dream and we'll pray with you about it and we'll think about it together. But certainly, I would never, ever, ever say to you, here's what needs to happen. Every time you go to sleep, whatever happens in your dreams, organize your life around that. This is a dangerous practice. That being said, I do not see reason to believe that God has somehow completely ceased moving in these particular ways. He's at least still doing it in the New Testament. We read the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, and none of us have any problems at all realizing that God comes in dreams. This is how the announcement of the birth comes in some ways. There's, there's moments when it seems like people have either daydreams or nighttime dreams, but nonetheless, in a kind of subconscious way that God is able and many times willing to speak and move His story of redemption along. So, does this still happen? Maybe, perhaps. God certainly can. What do we do if this, particular, if this thing kind of thing happens? Well, then I believe that God has given guardrails and the kind of community of love and instruction and then the fullness of Scripture, the light of the Bible, to shine on things like this to help us to figure out, is this influential or meaningful or should it be trusted? In this particular case, though, Joseph is aided by and is happy to be able to know that he has the power to interpret dreams. So imagine being in Joseph's spot. He is in prison, but given responsibility. Out of nowhere, massively influential people come. They have dreams that seem to be from God, and he knows how to interpret them. He then is able to speak to them. He becomes the one that gives them this interpretation and comforts them. And then the rest of Genesis 40 tells us that every single thing that he said comes true. There's an anniversary of sorts or a birthday of sorts that comes 
to Pharaoh. They're called forward. One is put back in his position. The other is killed. Joseph must have been packing his stuff. He must have been thinking, well, finally, I've been waiting all this time, and this is how God is going to rescue me. I have a way out. And what we get after a ton of waiting, and then this hope that erupts in the middle of it, what we get is one of the most painful sections of Joseph's story, and I know he's already had some painful ones, like his brothers selling him into slavery, but one of the most painful sentences in all of Joseph's story, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Scripture tells us in Proverbs that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Joseph likely thought that what God was doing through these prophetic dreams, which are interesting, that he was bringing an end to his troubles when instead what God ordains in this moment is more painful waiting. If we do the math, in the next chapter, in chapter 41, we see that Joseph is... 30 years old when he's finally restored to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. Do you remember how old he was when he was sold into slavery? 17. He's endured 13 years of painful servitude in obscurity. And in those 13 years, he's had many moments where he finally thought, this is it, this is my ticket, all my troubles are ended. Potiphar trusts me, I'm on my way to the top. He's falsely accused and thrown into prison. He serves there for years on end, and then the cupbearer comes, who is like Pharaoh's right-hand man. This is like the chief of staff of the president gets thrown into the prison cell with you. You give him good news and essentially become a prophetic dream teller to the point where everything that happens comes true, and you'd think just this one thing, this is my ticket and I'm out. And yet Joseph has to endure faithfully painful waiting. commenting on this kind of waiting. One pastor said it's perhaps that Joseph and us need to learn this lesson that we cannot command God as to the timing of His help. More than that, there are times when it seems as though God sees fit to not rescue us in an obvious way or not bring about means of our redemption in a way that could ever bring glory to mankind. It's been commented that if the cupbearer had grabbed Pharaoh's ear and in a behind-the-scenes deal managed to secure Joseph's pardon, that perhaps everyone in in the kingdom would have thought, oh, well, this was about social connections and about the help of man. Instead, he, is, he has to forfeit the hope of social connections and the help of man, and he waits and waits and waits on God. The thing that's being pressed forward here, this is what we need to feel in the particular moment. Joseph is having to step forward and trust, knowing full well that he has been forgotten and abandoned and rejected by many of the people that he thinks could have been his ticket out. 
one by one, every bit of man-made hope and idolatry is being stripped from him. And what we're finding in Joseph is in many ways the story of the whole Bible. That by the time we get to the promises of God, where he says things like this, I will never forsake you or forget you. When God is one who is faithful always, even when we're faithless, it's living through moments like this. It's remembering stories like Joseph lived that makes those promises and those moments so joyful. When we remember all the times that we've been faithless, when we remember all of the things that we could have hoped in that did not deliver, when we, in fact, remember our sins and what we deserve, it is then that we will rejoice and remember and think to ourselves, I cannot believe that God has not forgotten me. The question underlying all of Genesis 40 is, is God like the cupbearer? Did he forget? I think there will be many, to- many times and many moments in everyone's life where they wonder this, if they're honest, or if they stop, if they're not amusing themselves to death, and they actually think about things, if they feel the weight and the pain of their life, they may be tempted in a moment. It doesn't mean that they are spiritually inept or they mean- need to be rejected or somehow cursed, but they may be honest enough to bring themselves to the point where they say, I just don't know if God is there or if he's forgotten or if he was busy. The story of Joseph is going to tell us, and I think what it brings to us is, is a painful reminder of the waiting nature of our world, the failing nature of humans, the fact that betrayal and being forgotten is in some way inevitable And that our only hope is to turn to a God who never, ever, ever, ever forgets. If you commit yourself even to your own gifts, to your own usefulness, that's the amazing part. Joseph was useful. He interpreted interpreted correctly. God was using him. And yet it wasn't his ministry that ultimately delivered him. He had great connections, but it ultimately was not the influential people who would deliver him. He's stripped of all hope, save God himself, and that is what is going to make the difference in the whole story. I want to take a moment, and I wonder if the Spirit of God might help us to think about, well, what are we we hoping in? What are you waiting for? How painful is it? And I want to pray and commit ourselves to God who who remembers. He will always remember us. So let's pray together. God, thank you for the Bible. I believe that you've given us the details of these stories to, to darken the contrast, to set up in a starker relief the difference between us and you. You're not like us. You're not like cupbearers who forget. And so I pray that as we think about this chapter in the Bible, as we think about Joseph's story as a whole, I pray, God, that we would not lose heart, 
in waiting. I pray that in times when we are rejected or we feel like things have been lost or we suffer, I pray that we would not blame, that we wouldn't see it as evidence that all hope is lost. God, I pray that even through our painful times that you would be speaking to us, that your presence would be near, you'd help us to hope that in Jesus Christ we will be named, we will be remembered. God, thank you that you never change. You'll never forsake us. And ultimately, thank you, God, that you will never, ever, ever forget us. We're your children. We thank you for being our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.